Welcome to the third episode of the Real Estate Life Podcast, where we create a life of passive income through real estate and doing what we love. In this episode, we welcome David Fraz. He's our investment consultant and advisor. Today, we will discuss all about multifamily loans and what different options are there, when to reach out to an investment consultant, and why you want to have a business plan in mind before jumping in. All this and much more up next. Real estate investing is changing, but there are people evolving and thriving. In this podcast, we'll listen to their stories and hopefully learn from them. I am dedicated to creating a life where I could create multiple passive income and doing something I love along the way. To me, the most important part is doing significant work and create great relationships along the way. For those that want to invest in passive income multifamilies, email me at abio at abiobiestatos.com. My name is Abio Biestatos. I am a real estate investor and entrepreneur, and I want to help you live the real estate life. Welcome to the Real Estate Life Podcast. Welcome to the Real Estate Life Podcast. All right. Today on the show, we have David Fraz. Uh, so basically, David does all my financing. He's one of my advisors for anything that has to do with getting a loan in multifamilies. David practically is my consultant. Uh, whenever I look at a deal, before I look at it, I always pick up my phone, call David, run it by him. Uh, kind of gives me a game plan and a strategy, uh, typically before we go hard on a deposit. So David, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to glad to show up and talk to you for a couple of hours, I'm sure, but it's always great to uh, touch base with you. We're on the phone regularly, so it's- Yeah, uh, so, so David, I, I know this is gonna be a, I know I'm gonna enjoy this this podcast because I, I I know the value that you brought to our industry and to to my 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 business, and and I say that with all sincerity. Uh, there's a lot of things that you a lot of things that you saved us from from mistakes that we could have made, and that comes from your experience and and in your background in underwriting. Uh, so first, I would just want to jump right into it and and. Kind of tell the listeners uh, how you got into real estate and specifically how you got into financing in commercial loans like multifamilies. Sure. Yeah. Um, for me, getting into real estate for me, it was sort of uh, like a, a lucky accident. Um, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but the harder you work, um, the more you grind, the luckier you get. And for me, I got to a point, um, I had been working in banking at a couple of large banks for, for a number of years and uh, really hated what I was doing. And I uh, wasn't growing, didn't have any direction to kind of throw my energy, my passion into. And so I realized I had to make some change and uh, I, uh, I started networking really aggressively, like, <clears throat> like three, four a.m. emails aggressively. And um, pretty soon, yeah, and pretty soon I, I had interviews with some pretty big time um, investment consulting companies. And uh, one of them gave me a, a case study to do kind of homework for the interview. And it was to choose uh, from a list of investment companies and, and compare two of them and come up with a recommendation for uh, an investing client. And I ended up selecting two real estate companies. Um, and the more I learned about uh, their, their business um, and what they do, I didn't want to be in investment consulting anymore. I wanted to get into real estate. So 
Um, from that point, all my networking shifted into real estate. Um, and pretty quickly, I found an opportunity to begin screening debt uh, uh, for uh, for my first uh, company in in the, the business. And um, I, I ultimately wanted to be on the buy side, um, but I was learning really valuable skills on the debt side, developing a good skill set, and ultimately. Um, I, I was able to kind of marry my passion, um, my skill set that I developed in, in underwriting with my passion for uh, working with clients and building relationships. And so kind of, I guess, full circle, I, the way I would describe what I do now is basically investment consulting, as you know. So uh, it's kind of full circle, but, but that's kind of my story about how I got to, to what I'm doing now in real estate. Yeah, I, re I remember when we first met, um, it was actually my first Fannie Mae deal with Louis Berka, which I, I interviewed in an earlier uh, podcast. Uh, and we talked about that was our, me and Louis's first Fannie Mae deal. And I remember um, I, I had done a lot of uh, loans in the past, but I, it shocked me because I, I, was, I was surprised when your email came out that you were going to fly in to walk the property. And I just panicked. I'm like, what? Uh, you're, the underwriters flying to the property to walk it like I had never seen that because I come from a residential background so uh, no one ever does that you know you have an appraisal and that's it so immediately I call Louis I'm like dude the, the bank is sending the underwriters it's normal and um, you came over you walked the property you saw a few units and I and I remember I remember the experience was was after meeting you was calming like you just uh you know, you had your questions, you had your concerns, you did your inspections, but you also gave me great advice throughout that process. And that's when the relationship started. I'm like, dude, I like this guy. He, you know, you're very genuine about that. And you actually cared. Uh, you didn't run through it. I, I mean, I, I, I had done appraisals. Uh, I, I have a background in appraisals. And I seen what some of the appraisals are just, they run through properties. They don't really uh, care about what the owner is going through, through the process. Um, I probably had a poker face, but I was freaking out. I'm like, this guy's basically could kill our deal right now. Um, so that ended up being well and ended up being a great deal of execution. We closed the loan. We ended up assigning that mortgage uh, a year later. But that's how, that's how, that's how this relationship uh, happened. So, David, um, I, I want to go more into um, your, your, how you decided to get into specifically multifamily. So I know you're covering that side, but... I mean, what drew you to specifically multifamilies? Yeah, that, that again was just kind of a sort of an accident. Um, I, I, my first job was in real estate was with this company and I was actually underwriting all, all sorts of debt, but mostly multifamily. But, um, you know, there were, there were retail centers and, and office buildings and that sort of thing. But one of the, the primary differences with multifamily versus office or anything else is it's really easy for anyone, you, me, anybody else to understand multifamily. Um, you can understand an office building because you've, you, you've worked in an office or storage because you've had to put your stuff in storage. But multifamily on a different level where we've all lived in an apartment and had you know, the water heater go or had, you know, a landlord, you know, raise the rent or, you know, had tenants next door that were doing things we didn't like. 
Um, you know, so it's just from, from all those respects, it, it made multifamily really easy to understand. And again, you know, like I mentioned, the, the harder you work, the, the, the luckier you get. And I, I just found my stride in multifamily and uh, really just allowed me to, to progress very quickly in my career um, early on. And, and it was just kind of history after that. So, you know, I, I'm always happy to talk through uh, uh, other, other commercial deal, but multifamily for me is kind of where it's at. It's just, it's just what I'm best at in, in the business. So let's jump into the tough question because I know that recently we we closed uh, we closed two loans uh, during COVID, um, and there's certain conditions and there are certain things that changed. That um, I mean, you warned us about it, but it's it still hurt. Uh, uh, is you know financing during COVID? What is the new norm, and what is it that investors should expect? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think ultimately the new norm is COVID, um, at least for, for the time, time being. Um, but ultimately, the things that really um, need, that an investor needs to think about and understand when it comes to working with a lender, um, especially during COVID. But um, right now, everyone is a little bit more skittish about um, the underwriting, the collections, the rents, um, market problems, whether people are paid up, uh, whatever it is, really doesn't take much to spook the credit team. Um, And so you just have to kind of understand that your lender is going to ask you for, you know, an updated rent roll every week you know, whereas used to maybe get away with a rent roll for six weeks before your lender would ask for another one. But now we're going to want those more regularly. So we keep tabs on, on how things are moving at the property. Um, Same thing with collections. We're going to want collections every couple of weeks instead of every four to six weeks or something like that. Um, So there's certainly a lot more scrutiny. Um, And then, you know, I, I know you, this, this is kind of where it hurt a little bit, but the debt service reserve yeah. um, is, you know, not, not all lenders are requiring that in the sense that, you know, banks uh, don't necessarily need to do that if they're holding, holding it on their balance sheet, but they may come in at a lower loan to value to compensate for, for the risk of not having a, a debt service reserve. So there are a number of different ways that any lender can mitigate you know, the, the risk of, of, you know, the COVID economy. Um, but the way we've done it, the way Fannie and Freddie have done it um, are to require a debt service reserve. Um, and so, so that's kind of the, that's kind of the big, you know, change that, that really hits you because, you know, your 80% LTV may turn into, you know, 25% down because, you know, a couple hundred grand might be going into a debt service reserve, which is still your money. You'll still get it back. Um, but, you know, it's being held back at closing. So um, that certainly hurts. Yeah. So what advice uh, would you give to an investor that is looking to get into financing his first deal in Fannie or Freddie? Um, what would be the first, first things that you would suggest them to do? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing um, is 
complete transparency um, because there are a lot of situations um, in lending in general, but particularly with Fannie and Freddie, where it, investors don't necessarily think it's an issue, um, but it could really change the loan program, the terms, uh, or even their ability to, to get the financing to begin with. So, ex- give me an example of that. Um, so, uh, for example, uh, someone who, who lives in California wants to buy a property in Florida um, and they want to self-manage it. Maybe a 10-unit property, they may have had, you know, rentals in the past and they've self-managed. Um, you know, they don't think that there's too much trouble collecting rent or, you know, serving notices or whatever. Um, but at the end of the day, when it comes to a non-recourse Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac loan, they want to make sure that that, that asset is not going to go belly up. Um, and, and so uh, they want maybe someone who's closer to the property. Maybe they want a third-party management company. Um, maybe they want, if, if they're going to allow you to self-manage, maybe they want to see that you've managed you've owned and managed multifamilies, you know, for the past several years and, you know, you've been successful with it. So there are a number of things like that. So, um, you know, working through a whole, you know, book on, you know, sizing up a loan doesn't necessarily uh, matter if I then find out um, later on that the, the investor doesn't, doesn't want to have a management company and, you know, Fannie or Freddie just won't go for it. Yeah. So how, what's, uh, so let, let's say I, my property's a couple hours drive away. What's like the limit that Fannie would say, okay, yeah, you're a little bit too far from the property. And I, and, I, and I say this because I buy it throughout Florida and I know we've had this conversation before because we do, man, we do self-manage down here in South Florida. So what, what's an example of a distance that it's time for you to get a property manager? Yeah, I mean, there's no, you know, there's not really any uh, uh, firm, you know, distance that I can say. I mean, certainly you could, you could be, um, you know, an hour drive in Florida, but it might only be 30 minutes, I mean, 30 miles, you know. So generally the way Fannie and Freddie consider local to the property is within 100 miles. Um, and that's kind of the cutoff, uh, where, where then you, you start being considered non-local if you're outside of that, but being non-local doesn't mean that you can't get financing or that you're required to have a third party management company. It just means there, there are additional check boxes that need to be checked. So if you, if you don't live local, if you've never owned a multifamily before and, you know, you're buying a, you know, 60 unit building across the country, um, you're probably going to be required to have a third party management company. But if you've got 2000 doors and you've, you've been in multifamily for 10 years and you've proven that you can self-manage and you have other assets in the market, um, you probably get away with, uh, with not having a third party management company. Um, so do you finance nationwide? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. I mean, are you doing Puerto Rico also? We can do Puerto Rico, yeah. Yeah, right, yeah so right. I mean, I, uh, I've, over my time, I've done deals in probably the majority 
of the states across the country. I haven't really thought of, of any that I haven't. Um, I don't know that I've ever looked at a deal in Alaska, but I've certainly seen business in uh, uh, Hawaii and Puerto Rico and everywhere awesome. else. All right. So uh, this is a question that I actually would have loved to known this uh, early in my career. So in, in, when you do the transition from residential to commercial, uh, in the residential market, you go get uh, pre-approved first and then you go and look for your house. Uh, commercial is a little different because it's, uh, it's, a, it's a business, it's asset-based, the income of the business, it's kind of what's evaluated. So I'm, I'm on the market, I'm looking for a property uh, for a multifamily. When do I reach out to you? Do I reach out to you when I started, my, started looking? Do I reach out to you while I'm uh, underwriting? Uh, do I reach out to you when I made an offer or do I reach out to you when I, had, when I have an executed contract? Like when, when would you want someone to start talking to you? Yeah, well, I mean, my answer to you is going to be different <laughs> than my answer to someone else on that. But, but it, I always say it comes down to when you as the investor feel like you need to dial in your debt. So someone like you that's been doing this for years and we've gone through many deals together, you kind of know how we underwrite, you know what the requirements are. Um, you're going to be able to even probably ink the PSA without me looking at your deal and you're going to know whether it's clean or not. I mean, maybe if it's a hairy deal, you, you'll come to me and we'll talk through it and we'll work through it ahead of time. Which but, I did this weekend. I, I contacted you on a short-term rental portfolio yeah. uh, and I needed your advice on that. Uh, yeah. So more, more complicated deals, but that's the point, right? I mean, you, you knew that that was the kind of deal that, that you needed to talk to me first. Um, for a newer investor, that, they may hit that point is they're underwriting a deal and they may not know how to underwrite their taxes or they may not know what makes sense for a management fee in that market or something like that. So obviously for those folks, I'm a resource for them to reach out to, you know, along with reaching out to their mentors and, you know, listening to podcasts like this and reading books and things like that. Um, so I'm just another resource, but, but as they get more experience, they know a lot of those answers and we, you know, we work through things. So when they get to, to your, your level, you know, they know if something's clean or if something's not clean. Um, and so I always just say, you know, if you get to a point in a deal where you feel like you really need to pencil in on, on your debt, for example, you put your first offer in, you feel good about it. And then you find out that, that uh, the other offers that came in on the deal are a million dollars higher than you've offered. And you want to see if you can get there, but you can't do it without really knowing what your debt's going to be. So that, that would be a point that, that you'd reach out and we'd work through it. And, 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 and we're seeing a lot of that. We're seeing, uh, I see it all the time where uh, my offers just uh, sometimes they just get blown out the water and, you know, there, there's just different types of debt that, you know, these buyers are securing or they think they're going to secure. So, a lot of them go in, uh, especially with the low rates that we're seeing. So it's pushing prices up. So the, it, it's becoming very competitive in that in itself. So yeah. uh, David, tell me about some. Uh, tell me about a deal that you uh, that was very challenging for you, and this way, this way people could understand if, if they see anything like that, they could they could kind of get ready for it. And how'd you overcome that deal? Yeah, I mean it's. Uh, I know they're all challenging. 
they're all have their, their own challenges. Yeah. Um, I, I love the ones that are very smooth and easy to, to manage and kind of quarterback through. Um, but a lot of times that's just not, that's not life and that's not real estate. I mean, real estate in many ways is life. So, um, you know, we're talking about housing. It's, 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 it's life. So, I mean, what I would say there, there's a few things and then I'll kind of talk about one deal, uh, in particular, but, uh, you know, in insurance lately over the last 18 months, 24 months has been something that's been challenging on every deal. And, um, uh, you know, the, the insurance carriers are not, uh, you know, they're not dropping their rates, that's for sure. And they've seen a lot of claims over the past few years. Um, there are a lot of things that, um, that they want covered. And, and Fannie and Freddie require a solid insurance uh, policy. So um, I have seen that become an issue. And sometimes you need to switch insurance agents. Sometimes you need to think creatively. I mean, for example, I had a property where we were um, just a hair of the property was in a flood zone. Um, and what we had to do is we had to break the insurable value down by story because the first story um, of the property was just concrete parking uh, with pillars going up to the units on the second story. So we were able to sort of bring our insurance down on that um, to make it so the underwriting still uh, still made sense for the deal. Um, you know, there, there are complexities with homeowners associations and, and fractured condominiums. Um, there are, like you pointed out, there are hurdles with short-term rentals and, you know, whether they're advertised on Airbnb or if they're short-term rentals that have an on-site property manager who's, you know, leasing out for two weeks or four weeks or whatever. Um, the, the one in particular that comes to mind it's a challenge is, is a deal that you and I are working on right now. Um, collateral that is not true multifamily, commercial multifamily collateral with units that are, are sorry, buildings that are five or more units, um, which is generally kind of where residential and commercial meet is that five unit uh, mark. And so with this particular deal, um, you bought a property. I mean, I'll let you tell the story, yeah, I guess. So, yeah. So I'll jump in. And, and uh, so I, we bought a 18 unit portfolio with single family and duplex, triplex and four, fourplexes. It was a total of 41 units in total. Um, we got a great deal in Jacksonville on this property. It's typically not the type of deals that we buy. We like to buy multifamilies, uh, all 41 units all under one roof. That would be ideal. But it was such a home run that we had to buy it. Uh, when I bought the deal, um, I wasn't too sure if I was going to be able to put this in front of you. And, and, you know, we ran through it a couple of times and, you know, you were trying to figure out solution. Uh, and one of the solution was to, uh, that we found was get, get the single families out, get the, the smaller fourplexes and triplex duplexes, bundle them up, but we had an issue. We had some vacant lots in between. They weren't all connecting, but they were in a very uh, surrounding neighborhood. Um, they also have been managed all together for years. Uh, so the portfolio has its own name, its own brand. Uh, it's always been ran this way. So if you were to search the property, it's it was run together. Uh, so that helped us out in the structuring and I, uh, you just pulled it off. 
So we're, we're yeah, I mean, it, it, it wasn't that easy, um, no, you know, but, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, for, for everyone listening, we're talking about if you draw an I, a capital I, that's kind of where the property was. It was all along uh, one street and, and two perpendicular streets. Um, and, it, you know, each, each lot, each kind of tax lot had anywhere from, you know, one to four units on it. Um, and uh, so the, the challenge was really with Fannie and Freddie, they view that as those are single family, you know, those are residential lots, not commercial, not multifamily. And so we had, we had to find a way to include as many of the units as we could to keep the integrity of the property, um, you know, so you can manage it as one property instead of having to find different lenders for different buildings, um, instead of having to sell the majority of the buildings, things like that. Um, and, and ultimately, it came down in this particular situation that we had to exclude any parcel that only had one unit on it. Um, and not only did we have to do that, but we had to find a way to make any, uh, any cluster of units total to more than five. And then we were able to link each cluster of five or more to another cluster of five or more. And so that's how we were able to ultimately get sign off for it. Um, But, you know, these were conversations that went right up to the the highest levels of Fannie and Freddie. Um, And, you know, it's that sort of thing where this is the the kind of deal that if you knew those rules, you knew those guidelines, you might look at the deal and say, this can't be done. Um, But, you know, with your patience, I was able to to get it figured out. to figure yeah. that one out for you. Yeah. So what is the difference between a lender and a broker and which one are you? Yeah. Uh, I mean, so uh, I'm a lender and I think that's a really good question because there are a lot of brokers out there that, that, you know, they say, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm the lender or, or I'm, I'm a lender or I lend all over the country or however they word it. Um, a lot of brokers do kind of pitch themselves as lenders because they they are underwriting financing and they are you know working on the loan process. But the the real difference between a broker and a lender is that brokers find you your lender and the lenders actually give you the money. Um, you know, so so we underwrite the transaction. Uh, we make sure it fits within our box. We go to credit committee. We issue approval. We write the loan. You get the loan documents. They have our letterhead, our name. Um, they have our executives signing the loan documents. Um, that's the difference between a okay. broker and a lender. So the 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 kind of the pros and cons, or or really just the pros of each, is is that brokers are great. They're best at finding lenders, um, particularly for transactions that have some sort of complexity that makes the deal tough to stomach for some lenders. So there are certainly deals that we can't finance. Um, For example, if we hadn't been able to pull off um, that kind of uh, packaging that we just talked about, 
Yeah. Um, you you would need to find another lender, or you'd have to to exit the property. Right. But either way, someone's going to have to find a lender for that deal. Right. And right. and so that's where brokers come in because they have a rolodex of of you know many lenders that do many different things. Some lenders like big properties. Some lenders like little properties. Some lenders don't mind packaging deals that are ten miles apart. Um, right. Others want them to be you know, connected or, or attached, you know, contiguous one to the other. Um, so, so that's where brokers really shine is, is when it comes to um, finding a lender to finance a deal that's outside the box for other lenders. Which is um, that, that's when I use my, uh, my brokers when I know something that I, I have no business calling you for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, for example, I mean, if you, if you wanted to pick up a, a mixed use deal that was maybe, you know, 50,000 square feet and 30 of it, 30,000 square feet was retail um, and 20,000 square feet was apartments. That's a deal that I wouldn't be able to finance because it's mostly right. retail. Um, and so in that case, you, you'd, you'd be best off working with a broker. Um, alternatively, lenders, as a companies like like my company Lumen, um, we have originators like me who are kind of in-house loan originators, and, and, and our role um, is to nurture the relationship with the client, understand what they what they're trying to achieve, uh, what they're looking for, what their business plan is, and and then navigate the loan process and structure a loan that gets them to the best result. And so. And that's- I'm glad you mentioned the word nurture because that's one of the things that uh, has happened between us uh, throughout the years. And, and, and I'm going to give an example, which is it's an incredible uh, example of how we have nurtured our relationship and about uh, a recent deal that I closed in Ohio with a group of guys that came out of uh, a conversation with you. Uh, yeah. With Gwaith and Doran and Mike and Chris and that group, we we bought this property in Ohio uh, for eight point two million, and and I met them with you through a conversation on uh, on Zoom video. Uh, yeah, they partnered up so partnered up with us in the deal fifty percent. So you didn't you that was a referral. That was you basically put us together with a group of guys that you've done a lot of financing for you uh, felt comfortable that you could introduce us and that we would work well together, which uh, that's also a risk that you took because uh, it could have gone sour. <laughs> so, uh, so you introduced us and ended up uh, putting together an $8 million deal, which now you're going to refinance uh, and get us out of our bridge debt. So it, it was a win-win. So nurturing, is, nurturing relationships is very important in this business. Uh, uh, I, I, to this day, I, you know, I'm grateful for that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, for me, that's why I'm in the business, honestly. I mean, that's where, that's where I get the, the satisfaction and fulfillment from what I do. Um, you know, that, that gets me, you know, waking up and, and kind of just grinding all day, you know, it's the relationships for me. And, you know, when I have a great client that, wants to do more business, but is constrained by one, you know, one limitation. And I have another client that's constrained by a different limitation. You know, you, you guys pulled together and, and really mashed after the kind of the first conversation, you guys 
mesh together really well and and there happened to be a live opportunity that you guys could discuss and and you know i think i think all of you were were just super transparent with each other about what was going to work for you in a partnership and what wouldn't work and you know you guys were able to make it so all the things that would work came together and um so so yeah that's exactly it i mean a a a a broker you know, could do that too. Um, but, but at the end of the day, they're, they are mostly focused on kind of a transaction um, in the sense that um, they're not necessarily underwriting um, the loan. They're not closing it and taking the risk on it. And so it gives me an opportunity as a lender to really invest a little bit more on those relationships. Not that not that brokers don't invest in their relationships, but um, you know, I think for me that that's the biggest part of what I do. Yeah, I, I think there there's there's um there's a value to that. So if so, by you connecting us to another group, you gave us more more f- financial power to buy a property. Uh, you you networked a group that now had a certain amount of money. Now you combine those. Now we're able to buy a bigger property. So. It, it's all like a, it's all like a marriage. Like it's a, it, it, you benefited us. Now you benefit because now you're doing the refinance. Uh, so it works. I think brokers should be doing more of that. So uh, it's kind of uh, they see that there's there's a group because at the end of the day you see how you see how the groups work and you get to see them to write their deals. So you guys, you know what? These two groups work very similar. They're buying the same asset. They they kind of have the same strategy. Uh, maybe they should meet or just out of a, you know, just a regular conversation. Look what came out of it. So that was actually a good strategy. I don't know if you strategized it on purpose, but it worked. Uh, so we'll just no, leave it I mean, like that. We'll it leave it really like. just comes, like I said, I mean, it yeah. comes from understanding what, what your client is looking for. And one of the things, you know, when I talked to those guys, what they were looking for is they were looking for more deals. Yeah. And what you were looking for is, sort of more ability to close more deals. You had plenty of deals, um, you know, but you were stretched a little thin and, and you needed yeah. to, to kind of partner up and yeah. this gave you an opportunity to attack a deal that was further outside your market without yeah. knowing that, you know, you're going to have to fly to Ohio every three days to keep tabs on things, you know, so you, you spread it out. So yeah. I, just just understanding what people need um, and and how to help them, achieve it because yeah, it worked. it's it's a long-term game yeah all right so uh tell us um what is important to know about debt service coverage ratio and L- ltv loan to value Just summarize that for us really quick yeah so the debt service coverage ratio is basically your your net operating in, uh, income or your your net cash flow um and and you the calculation is you 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 put that over your uh, mortgage payments. So your debt service, your principal and interest, not including taxes and insurance, but your principal and interest uh, might be a hundred thousand dollars. If your net operating income is one hundred and twenty-five thousand, that would be a debt service coverage ratio of one twenty-five, one point two five. Um, and the loan to value is just the 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 uh, it's really just a ratio. It's a maximum, um, the way we use it as lenders. Um, you know, so for example, I had a, a, 
a situation where um, we were sizing based on the debt service coverage, um, we were sizing to 78% loan to purchase price. Um, and the investor said, well, can we just, you know, do 80? It's a cleaner number. Um, and the answer is no, you, you can't. 80% loan to value is just the maximum um, kind of that, that, you know, the bank or Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac or whoever will, will lend based on the purchase price or the value of the property. But the real sizing constraint is kind of, does it meet the, the requisite uh, debt service coverage ratio? So um, that's the primary con- uh, constraint. And it's kind of a, a basically, essentially, that's the minimum NOI or the minimum cash flow that a property needs to achieve in order to meet the lender's requirement for servicing the debt. Um, and so you, you, you have to underwrite a deal properly in order to get your proper NOI. And keep in mind that the lender oftentimes is going to want to write a deal differently than you might as an investor. And simple example of that is if you self-manage a deal, you're buying a property, you're going to self-manage, you say, oh, I'm not going to have any administrative costs because I'm just going to write my own leases and I'm going to print them off in my inkjet in my office and that's going to be that. Um, so you may budget, you know, $5 a unit for, for administrative expenses, but in reality, your lender, if they take over the property, they're not going to be able to operate your property with $5 a unit in administrative expenses. So they're going to have to budget something higher. So, um, you know, sometimes there's a difference between your debt service coverage and mine. Yeah. I, I see that all the time. Um, and I actually used to make that mistake too in the beginning where I used to underwrite. I wouldn't put any administrative fee. Uh, I wouldn't put legal fees. I wouldn't put reserves. And uh, you quickly learn that. And when you start doing your first deals that, oh, I need to budget for that. Oh, I need to account for that. And actually, I would say sometimes when you, when you put your first deal through, through a lender, it opens up your eyes. They kind of like... for they kind of save some deals uh, from owners hanging themselves because yeah. they, they, they kind of like, let you know, I, I, dude, you need to put this in there. Uh, I, I know you think you're going to save it, but you're probably not. So it, you guys are like a screen that sometimes uh, people need because they're just naive of what the reality is. Uh, so sometimes uh, we have to uh, underwrite and put all those things in there. Even if we think that we're going to save it, just put it in there. You never know. So that's, yeah. that's interesting that another really common example, just jumping back to, to the kind of the insurance point I made earlier is, I mean, if you're buying a deal for a million dollars and you're going in with all this energy and this, you know, you're well capitalized and you're going to, you know, put a bunch of money into it and you're, you're going to increase the value to $2 million, you know, you're, you're not going to get, an insurance policy that, you know, you're getting, you're not going to only insure a million dollars worth yeah. of property. So, you know, you, you might underwrite, Oh, well, if, if the seller can get a policy at, you know, $4,000, I can get a policy at $4,000. Oh, I see that all the time. I see that. Yeah. You, you, you double your value or, or whatever, you know, and the seller may be underinsured. So if you want an actual, you know, policy that really covers you, 
you might need to triple up on your insurance expense. And that's just, and you see a lot of that because the seller, the seller's underinsured because they have, some of them don't have any debt or they have a friends and family private lender. So you're underwriting a deal based on their insurance. And then you get a reality check, uh, especially if you're in a flood zone. We see that all the time here in Florida. Uh, Our insurance policies are are pretty high over here. Uh, So I get schooled on that all the time. So I know to get in uh, my insurance uh, during the inspection period. You do not wait for the last minute on that because that would really throw your numbers out of whack. Uh, Are Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac loans securitized? And uh, what is important about that? For, for the for the listeners, what is it that they yeah. need to know about that so they can understand that? Yeah, they are securitized. So that's that's the difference between um, you know a credit union or a local bank or um, any other balance sheet lender. You know, most bridge lenders are balance sheet lenders. Your hard money lenders are essentially balance sheet lenders. Um, so so they do a loan and then it just sits there on their books. You know, as a as a an asset. Um, they so the difference between securitizing a loan and letting it sit on your books is that the loan becomes a security, becomes an investment that Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, you know, Fannie Mae, like Fannie Mae will you know buy buy their own under security. So um, the, the reality is um, we don't we package up our loans and sell off the the rights to that income stream, the interest, right? Um, What's important to understand is we do continue to service the loan. Um, So if if you do a loan with us, as opposed to in the residential space, those loans get securitized as well. But um, you might do a a loan with, I don't know, infinity lending in your hometown or something like that. Um, And then as soon as they close the loan, 15 days later, you get a a letter in the mail saying, you know, Bank of America bought your loan. Um, and so now you have to send Bank of America a whole bunch of pieces of information that you just went through the loan process. You thought you were all done. Um, for us, we'll close your loan and you won't ever get transferred to Bank of America. They may buy the security. They may buy the interest that you're paying but we still act as the servicer and the asset manager. If you have an issue with your loan, you would talk to us. I would remain a point of contact for you throughout you know, the, the life of the loan, whether that's five, seven, 10, 30 years, whatever it is. Um, and and so, so that, that's really important to understand when, when we talk, if, you know, if someone, one of your listeners says, oh, but the loan gets sold. No, 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 it doesn't get sold like it does in the residential space. We still service uh, service the client. Um, the other thing to, to know on, on that is I had, when, when rates really started tanking, uh, earlier in 2020, um, had people thinking, Oh, rates are near zero. Can I get a, a, an interest rate near zero? And it doesn't work like that. Um, you know, because again, no, no, nobody who is going to lend, whether it's a hard money lender or a bank, um, nobody's going to lend at no interest. Um, it's just the cost of capital. They could do too many other things to earn a return on that capital. So rates don't, you know, if, if the Fed takes rates to zero, your interest rate doesn't go to zero. It goes lower, but it doesn't go to zero. Got it. All right. So 
How do you, uh, so how do we look at uh, net rental income versus uh, other incomes? So just for the listeners to understand what an NRI is, yeah. give them some clarity on that. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's an important one too, uh, because a lot of times we'll get, I mean, not just we, but you, I mean, you'll be talking with a seller and you'll get a simple statement that says, you know, 2019 income of 100,000 or 2020 income of of 80,000 or whatever. Um, but oftentimes with multifamily, these are businesses, right? And you, a, a, a bodega on the corner doesn't just sell Coke. They sell Coke and gum and everything else, right? And so they want to know, you know, if they're selling lots of Coke, they don't want to just keep buying more gum. They want to buy more Coke. So it's, it's one of those things where as a lender, we need to understand and you as, as, as an investor need to understand how much of this income is coming from people paying their rent and how much of it is coming from other income sources, pet fees, late fees, uh, water billing, if you have a rubs program, parking fees, uh, attorney's fees, whatever, insurance proceeds. I mean, you might have someone report $100,000, uh, have a seller report $100,000 in income from 2019, and then it goes to $80,000 in income in 2020, and you say, what happened? And they say, oh, well, we got $20,000 in insurance proceeds. Well, that, that's a big deal because you're not going to want to account for $20,000 every year in insurance proceeds. Yeah. Um, additionally, um, you, you know, if a property is performing poorly, there could be a lot of late fees. There could be uh, reimbursement for attorney's fees. There could be plenty of things um, that you don't want to necessarily count on moving forward. Um, if you install, you know, new tenants that are paying on time, you're not going to have the late fees. Um, you know, if, if you take a property from 50% occupied to uh, 100% occupied, you're not going to have, you know, 10 application fees every month because you're already 100% occupied. So you do need to kind of parse that stuff out. And from the collection standpoint, the only way to tell really what the bad debt is at the property, what the collection loss is, how, how good the tenant base is at keeping their end of the bargain and paying rent is to know exactly what is rental collection. So NRI is net rental income. Not you see that I, I I see a lot of that on on self managed properties where it's just a mess. You they, you don't know where anything is coming from. It's not identified. Uh, I mean, professionally managed uh, properties they will have the breakdown. But yeah, I I know exactly what you're talking about. It's it's you become a detective. I go through that all the time, trying to figure yeah. out when you're trying to buy a deal. Where did this come from? And it's 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 all over the place. So uh, the, presenting that to you is very important in the cleanest matter possible. Uh, yeah. And it's also and good for you to understand that as a, as an owner, as a buyer, when you're looking at that, and even as a seller, um, there's nothing worse than when you're selling a property and your buyer does not know what the income is and where is it coming from. Uh, it just raises red flags. It, it would definitely sweeten your deal if you're very transparent in the transaction and just allow people to understand what they are, if they're late fees, late fees, that's fine. We all understand. There's a lot of those right now during COVID. Um, all right, let's, let's jump yeah, I mean, into them. Um, go ahead. Oh, the last thing I was going to say on that 
is, you know, it's, it's, it's not always perfect. Like you don't always get that. Um, but that's one of those things that is important as a buyer before you go to your lender and expect them to turn around a term sheet in 24 hours, you want to make sure that that's something you've already asked for. Um, if the seller can't provide it and they keep pushing back, that's one thing. Um, but you know, you don't make anyone's job or, or the timeline on your deal any easier by, by not asking that question. So it's the same thing with leases and other things that you may have what you need. If you're buying a distressed property as an investor, you may have what you need to underwrite the deal. Um, but you got to think about what your lender is going to need too. Um, so even if you don't need it to make your you know, green light decision to go forward with a deal, your, your lender is going to need some things that you want to make sure to ask for. That's true. All right. So, uh, so everyone knows the, the standard loans that are out there. Um, the ones that, you know, the basic ones, but there's some really cool ones that when I was talking to you before this show that I was, uh, I was surprised to hear and I thought I knew them all. So let's just, let's run through some of these because, uh, there's one there in particular that, that I really like. So, uh, yeah, which one do you let's like? start with the, let's, let's, uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a fan of the 30 year loan one, but I think there's a lot of folks out there. One I've seen, I, I, I see that a lot in my, in my business where people have holding on to these properties for 20, 15, 30 years, but they don't know about this. So let's start with that 30 year program. Yeah. So I think you're right. I think, um, I think one of the, the, reasons is, is people, people at different stages in someone's investing, uh, life, they kind of sort of think they've got it figured out. And then like you, they, they realize they don't necessarily have everything. And so what happens is with residential loans, often you're, you know, stuck at like, a uh, uh, what are you, you have a 10 year arm or a 30 year fixed, or maybe a 15 year fixed, which also amortizes over 15 years. But then people start kind of getting into the multifamily, the commercial side, and, and they start working with banks. And a lot of banks will do like a five year deal with a 20 year amortization, or maybe they'll do a seven or a 10 year deal, but there's still a balloon payment after 10 years. And if you're a kind of, if you're a, a buy and hold, uh, kind of family man investor or, or a husband and wife that wants to own a property and, and then pass it on to their children and kind of build a, you know, build a legacy that way. Um, you don't necessarily want a five-year balloon or a 10-year balloon. And one of the things that we can do with Fannie Mae um, is we can offer many different loan terms, but we can offer a 30-year loan term and that amortizes over 30 so that's just like your residential mortgage in the sense that at, after 30 years, you've paid off the mortgage and you own it free and clear. And um, so, so for you, you're not familiar with this because you don't- No, yeah, that takes a lot of discipline. That, way, that takes a lot of discipline. <laughs> yeah, right. But I see it all the time. Like uh, right, now, right now, we're, we're closing on an 84 unit. The, the owner has owned it for 25 years. Uh, and so, yeah, you do see- you do see people that that hold on to assets for a very long time, and it's, it's, yep. it's it, they usually don't have too many partners. I'll tell you that it's usually just one person, and yeah. um, so th- that's that's interesting to know that there there is a 
that you guys do offer that program. Um, there's another program that I loved it blew me away was that you could get a second loan with Fannie uh, on your property. So you could kind of, you don't have to technically need to refinance to pull your equity out. If you already have a loan with Fannie, correct me if I'm wrong. Right. So instead of refinancing, you just tag on a second loan and pull your equity or, or uh, on the property. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, we call that, that's a supplemental mortgage. Um, so what happens is uh, it, when it's originated, you, you and I do a deal. And then two years later, you want to put on a second loan um, and, or you want to refire, you want to get, you want to get some equity out because you've added a bunch of value. Um, so we can do a supplemental. And if you have, let's say you have eight years left on your loan term, we did a 10 year long the first, the first time around, we do the supplemental for eight years. So they both mature at the same time. We call that coterminous maturity. Um, and so, so now you can add another million dollars or, or $2 million um, onto your, your unpaid balance. So you get that equity. Maybe you invested heavily with capital improvements and you want to get that money back. So we can do that. Um, and the, the only thing to note is that um, you, that second loan does not go through at the rate at which the first loan went through. So if rates go down, you would get the market rate at the time. So it could be good in that scenario. If rates go up, you, your second lien would have the higher market rate at the time that it's originated. Um, but oftentimes that recipe, that strategy can be a good one when the majority of your debt from your first lien is originated at a time like this when rates are, are super low. I'll tell you what another great strategy that's for. Uh, let's say you want to exit the property and you know you're going to exit in the next year. You do the supplemental loan, you pull your capital gains out, you sell your property. Now you don't have to pay taxes on that property, on, on, on those gains because you, you refinanced or, or you, did the, you did the loan. So it, it's, it, there's a lot of ways that that could benefit you, especially on your exit too, uh, if you strategize it correctly. That way you don't have to do a 1031 exchange. Um, so that's another strategy. Uh, I agree, man. That's a, that's a great program. Uh, let's jump into the next one, uh, which is very interesting with the hybrid small balance loans. Yeah. Yeah. The, the hybrid, the hybrid loan is, is another interesting, interesting one. And that one is really useful for, for folks that are not so keen on having a balloon payment at a time when they, they, May, may not know where the market's going to be. So for example, today, you may want to do a five-year loan because you don't want to lock in a prepayment for 10 years or something like that. And you may want to have the flexibility to sell or refinance after five years, but you might also not want to put yourself in a position where five years from now, the economy is really struggling and debt, the, the debt markets are are all closed off um, and the valuation of your property doesn't support, you know, the debt that you want, but maybe things are improving. And so if you hang on for a couple more years, you might be able to get the exit that you wanted. Um, a hybrid loan with the Freddie Mac small balance program is a 20 year note. Um, it's a 20 year note amortized on 30 years. So there would still be a balloon after 20 years. 
um, but you could do a fixed rate period of five, seven, or 10 years. So for example, the seven year fixed rate would then have an adjustable rate for 13 years thereafter. So you get to your seventh year, um, your rate might adjust. It could be fairly similar if rates haven't moved from the time the loan was originated, could be higher if rates have gone up. Um, but you don't have to repay that loan at that time. You don't have a balloon that you have to chase around a lender and find someone who will finance your deal um, at that time. You can, you know, even if you're having, you know, your one of your kids is graduating from college and so it's a bad year to, to be spending, you know, two, yeah. three months yeah, on refinance. You just push it down the road. Yeah. Now, uh, uh, the last one that I want to touch base on is, uh, your program, how you could uh, finance and build in your CapEx into the financing all the way up to 80%. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's you and I have done that. Um, I think that's one of the lesser known um, uh, uh, commercial abilities that people don't necessarily um, know that we can do that. Uh, it's, I actually had a conversation with an investor this past year. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes you just don't know what you don't know, I guess. But, um, I, I was pitching that opportunity based on what he told me his business plan was. And, uh, he, um, he said, no, Fannie Mae, you can't build in capital improvements with Fannie Mae. And he wouldn't listen. He was absolutely certain that I was wrong. And, uh, which is interesting, uh, given my background, but, um, yeah. So what happens is we get an appraisal that factors in your capital improvement budget. And we can only factor in up to 8,000 a unit um, in capital improvements before it becomes a different loan program. Um, and we, it kind of changes things. We can still do that, but it, it changes things and, and adds a little bit more complexity to the deal. Um, but up to 8,000, we give the appraiser your capital improvement budget and they do an analysis and say, yeah, we agree that after doing these renovations, your value will be, you know, 8 million instead of 7 million. Um, and when they do that, then we have that value and we can lend on that value. Um, and lending on that value means you get a higher loan, even though those dollars for the renovations have to be set aside in escrow and you have to kind of do the work, get reimbursed, do the work, get reimbursed. Um, but once you've done the work, you end up with a higher loan balance than you would have otherwise. So therefore you don't have as much of a need to refinance at that point because you've already got that higher level of debt. Um, and, and therefore from, you, from your perspective as a syndicator, you don't have to raise that extra um, you know, million dollars in, in equity if you want to do, say, $2 million worth of work or something. You just kind of recycle the money that yeah. you're getting reimbursed from the lender. Oh, this, this structure will skyrocket your IRR. Uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's an, it's an amazing, if you could pull it off and they meet all the criteria, I suggest you, you know, you, you go hard on that one. But that's the one caveat is it still has to size. Yeah, it has to size, yeah. The yeah. debt service coverage. So, it doesn't necessarily work on deals where, um, you know, the rents are just way below market and the occupancy is terrible. And, you know, so 
you still have to have the cash flow to support yeah. the higher loan amount. Um, but yeah, you're right. It can, it can certainly turbocharge your IRR. So uh, I'll, I'll end the show with this one, one suggestion to the listeners and advice. And, and this is something I know you w- you're going to want to jump in because it makes your job so much easier. And it, it's one that I know me and you have had that conversation and I'm like, you know what, you're right. I should, I should know that one is sometimes you, you know, you, you get into deals with partners, but you don't have a loan structure. You don't have an idea. You don't, sometimes you're just going so fast that one partner is saying, no, I want to do five. No, wants to do 10 years. Those do seven. It's really important that the partnerships, everyone's aligned with each other. And when they come to you, they tell you, David, our business model for this deal is five years or 10 years. This, this allows you to be able to consult them and structure them and say, okay, guys, this is what I have. This is the closest thing I had. This is what you should be getting. That coming to you and saying, uh, I don't know what we want. It's like, no, you need to figure out your business model. You need to go back to your guys and talk to them. All right, guys, what are we doing here? And uh, what, what suggestion do you have on that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, again, it kind of goes back. I mean, most, most borrowers sort of end up letting themselves, not most borrowers, but a, a lot of kind of newer uh, investors that are getting commercial financing kind of let themselves get pushed into um, uh, the standard loan structure, maybe a 10-year fixed rate loan with seven years of yield maintenance prepayment um, without really contemplating how that jives with their business plan. Um, and, and I've had conversations where uh, I ask, you know, I'm trying to figure out what, what loan term you want, what you know, what's your business plan? Tell me what you plan to do with your exit. Um, you know, how many years do you want to hold the property? Are you going to have investors? Is it just you? I mean, everything to do with the business plan helps. Um, and, and I've had instances where the bars are, I don't know, you tell me, well, I can't tell you what your business plan is because I'm not the owner. <laughs> so, um, but, but it's really important to talk to your lender about the, your business plan because, a five-year deal with declining, you know, step down five, four, three, two, one prepayment is going to put your exit in a very different position than a 10-year fixed rate loan with yield maintenance um, that could leave you paying, you know, 8% of the loan balance in five years if you wanted to sell it or something like that. So it's really important to, to get with your partners, like you said, understand the likelihood of a refinance after a few years, the likelihood of selling. And it's tough because you can't really have the best of every world. You, you know, you, you may want all the flexibility, but you think you're going to hold the property for, for 20 years and you sort of have to balance that out and say, you know, what's the likelihood that I'm going to hold it? Yeah, for correct. Yeah. And what's the likelihood I want to have that uh, relationship or that partnership you know, some, sometimes that's a lot, lot to consider also. Um, and where are you, what stage you are that we talked about earlier in your life. David, man, uh, this was awesome. There was a lot of information. Um, uh, it was a refresh course for me. Uh, so I appreciate your time, man. How can the listeners uh, get in contact with you? Yeah, um, people can reach out to me anytime. Um, just use me as a resource if they want to get to know me. You know, certainly becoming comfortable with someone is the most important. So um, they can shoot me an email, david.fraz at lumen.com. Um, maybe you can post that if you send this out. 
um, or they can give me a shout. 703-663-5886 is phone number. You know, what I do, I'm on the phone all day anyway. So always happy to take an impromptu call of somebody who, who's looking to get in touch. David, man, thank you for your time. This was awesome, man. We'll be in touch. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Life Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to reach out to me, please go to my website, www.abiobiesteros.com.